0: Digital Gonzo, episode 74, dated Thursday the 10th of May, 2012, Alien. This is the first of seven reviews of the Alien movies. In the next few weeks, we will be covering Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, along with the two spin-offs, Alien vs. Predator and Aliens vs. Predator Requiem, culminating on the road to Prometheus when we review Ridley Scott's Return to the Universe he started after 33 years' absence, and a sliding scale of quality. Unlike the Star Wars films that kicked off this review show, we're going to start at the highest point and then slowly descend into the doldrums and the bowels of cinematic effluent. And who knows, maybe emerge on the other side smelling of roses if Scott can pull this one off. Me and my assembled crew, who may find themselves getting picked off one by one as the movies get worse and worse until there's only myself and a cat left, stand right now numbering six. Leah Haydu of GamerDork version 4.0 returns to Digital Gonzo.
1: cat's my favorite character. I'm just putting that out there.
0: You are Jones from now on. Sweet. Josh... So I'm leaving you after aliens. Josh... (laughs) Joshua... It's possible Jones outlived everyone. Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince is back for the long haul, planning to take on the many faces of Batman as well. Hello, everyone. Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet has specifically requested at least the first two films from the Alien series to discuss. Hello. Matt, Matt Harrier-Ramsey of Dorktunes, was one of the first people to ask to be on these shows. What was the last uh, Digital Gonzo where you, you were on, Matt? Predators, I think. Oh, God, that was ages ago. And finally, from the Geek Wad podcast presented by Gonzo Planet, James Midgmeister-Perkins. Good evening. I will kick off with this first theme, uh, Isolation which is something that pervades throughout this first film. The fu- it starts with the vastness of space, and the, the, the planets are sort of sitting there, and you've got this very cold... It, it's almost ambience uh, for the actual music by uh, Jerry Goldsmith. He hasn't, he hasn't done sort of hummable tunes. In fact, if you buy the uh, Alien soundtrack, there's this really kind of catchy sort of... for the main theme. That's not even the main theme of the film. It's used in bits, when they're landing, but they've specifically held off on this. It's it's very similar to the Star Trek theme, which Goldsmith also did. Uh, And it all sort of adds to this feeling that even though the Nostromo is absolutely vast, it's still minuscule compared to how enormous space is.
2: I think um, Alien's really important film in the history of filmmaking, just in terms of the design of the way they approach the future in terms of the technology of the ship and the way the ship's designed there have been very few sci-fi films up until this point that really show like the dirtiness the dankness of space most of them have been kind of shiny polished examples of what the future might be Uh, even 2001 A Space Odyssey Mm -hmm. is showing a kind of glamorous view of the future despite it's serious tone but I really like how everything's Dirty and the lighting's really rough, and all everyone's clothes are not—they're not these like shining uniforms that you get from the Star Trek movies. They're more just like what we would wear, and what you'd imagine somebody working on, kind of like an oil rig almost. They're wearing like engineers' uniforms, like you would on an oil rig or something like that. Mm. Um, it, 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 it lends a sense of authenticity to the environment they're in that you don't get from a lot of films of that era. You do later on, um, this film is hugely influential, um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of sci-fi films kind of took those design elements and implemented them. But at the time, this was kind of unique.
1: I want to actually just interject something there um, that... By and large, that's absolutely the truth. The one exception that you really get in that intro sequence, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but is the control room where everything is very white. There mm. are lots of little lights. That's kind of the one place in the ship where everything is really super ordered and not quite what you see in the rest of the corridors on the crew. Mm. Um, and so maybe that's a, a little bit of a foreshadowing that that's not quite going to fit in.
0: Priority has been given to Mother.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Crew Expendable.
3: Yeah. Um, like Josh said, it, uh, the opening sequence shows the, the vastness of space and how lonely they are um, in that particular part of space. And I think that fits the, the tagline. Well, the tagline fits that really well, I suppose, because obviously they put the tagline in after. You know, in space, no one can hear you scream. It's really focusing on the fact that if anything goes wrong then there's no one mm. anywhere nearby that can send them help. So uh, they are literally on their own. There's, uh, I put a little note down here,
0: beeswax. Anyone know what this is? No. No. <laughs> it's, it's literally beeswax, the, the resin. Uh, Ridley Scott had everything has been rubbed with bars of beeswax to give it a sort of a weird, grubby coating. It's not necessarily authentic to actual space travel, but he's trying to make space travel look like it's it's not nice and shiny, and it does actually—you pick up filth as you go along. So everything's got this weird sickly glow to it, uh, like it's like the like a, a minerals are sort of collecting in every every corner. And uh, one of the other notes that I made while I was uh, watching it was dirty light—the planet eclipsing one of the suns—with uh, that sort of uh, again sickly greeny browny yellowy glow behind it. It seems like just enough light for a person to be able to survive with, but just not well. So it's, it's they're they're out on the frontier. It's really inhospitable, and uh, you know the, the suits that they're, des- they're, they're 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 clad in are absolutely you know sort of geared up to to shut out a really horrible environment. So it, it, it just it makes you feel sort of paranoid. You can step out the door.
4: There's obviously, and I think there's probably something that's going to crop up later, but there's a lot of parallels between this and um, two other sci-fi films that I really, really love, which is uh, Pitch Black and Sunshine. Mm. Um, the the tone of the, as you say, the authenticity of the spaceship um, and the dirtiness of it, that kind of thing. Um, and I have no doubt that those films take a lot of their cues from Alien um, anyway. So it's, it's easy to see where that's come from. But one thing that I find really interesting about it, and I think it was was it Josh said it it was almost like an oil rig? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah,
4: it... These people, the, the resources that they're bringing back, and that little flashcard that you get that says how much you know, mineral ore or whatever it is that they're bringing back, they are clearly bringing resources back to the Earth which are desperately needed. They wouldn't be going that far across space if those resources were available closer to home. So they're providing something that's absolutely vital. Um, pitch Black, they're, they're supposed to be in a shipping lane, aren't they? So they're, they're a cargo ship. They're, they're taking things where they need to be and people to where they need to be. They're providing quite an essential service. Sunshine, they're trying to save the world. What they're doing is incredibly important. But the environment in which they are being asked to do this is pretty substandard really. Nobody, unless they were very, very dedicated to what they were doing, would volunteer to be in that environment for long extended periods of time and I think you've got a, a discussion point on about um, class as well this mm. notion that um, that people are being asked to do and are willing to do horrible things in horrible environments for somebody else's sake um, and that's I think something that comes through with a, a few of the characters um, particularly
0: Parker and Brett uh,
4: Yeah, yeah I think so Um, that they are sort of the bottom end of this this pile.
0: I don't think I've seen many films before this where hypersleep was used to such an effect. It seems like this really grotty, unpleasant process... That just has to be done, otherwise you'd be on the ship going mad for months and possibly years on end with nothing to do. But there's something. It it starts off the movie with those with the pods opening in an almost like insect wing like way, and there's loads of insect themes throughout the uh, film, and in fact throughout all of the films. And this is just like the way way that it starts off, and they're coming out of cocoons effectively.
1: It's just another way to emphasize the isolation because I mean it's it's effectively being blindfolded thrown in the back of a van and just driven around until you have no idea where you are they could be anywhere they don't even know that they're not home until they've been awake for a while Hmm. you know they they have no means of connecting where they started out their hypersleep to where they currently are when they awaken from it so not only are they isolated physically they're also isolated mentally because they just
4: they, they really just can't connect themselves uh, to to where they are. The light in the um, hypersleep chamber as well is quite different to the light everywhere else on the ship and I would imagine that there's quite a bit of UV thrown in there to get them to wake up because the body sort of needs sunlight to tell itself that it's time to get up. If you woke up to dim, grungy uh, interior poorly energised lights you'd never get going they'd come out of hypersleep and they'd just trudge around like zombies until they got home
0: the other thing is actually characterization. the first person to wake up is Kane so especially because he and Dallas who also seems like a fairly strong character are two of the, uh, the main characters that go into the ship Uh, along with Lambert but Lambert's so annoying from the get-go that you're fairly certain she's not going to be the lead character but if you're seeing this for the main uh, first time uh, you wouldn't know from the get-go until maybe 45 to an hour in that Ripley's actually the lead character it's not her story yet so class now this comes across during their first discussion where uh, Parker and Brett start sort of bitching about the fact that they're being asked to get up and, and do extra work. And they're sort of, you know, uh, you know, we need to see some cash up front for this. Uh, and they get smacked down by... It, I think the way it works is that Parker and Brett are the working class. Dallas and Kane are at the top of the pile, the ranking officers, with possibly Ash being in there as well. And Lambert and Ripley are somewhere in the middle. They have to take orders from the top, but they also have to then give orders down, there, down, down to the bottom.
1: I would argue that um, the top layer is actually Mother, and by extension, Ash.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah I was going to say, I think Ash has a um, a slightly outside the class structure position in the sense that he's the educated class that can sidestep morals sometimes because there's a logical reason to do so
0: he also quotes the book at everyone else on, on the ship Sort of, you know this is the protocol this is what the company says and because he's so fallen in line with the company that he effectively gets to dole out pretty much everyone has to jump to his tune because whatever they do against what he says is in violation of the, their contracts which will mean that they don't get paid
4: but as soon as he has a, a situation where going by the book is going to be counter to his instructions i.e. letting them back on the ship again he's quite happy to throw the book out the window it's a tool he uses to control the others. It's yeah. not something he feels he has to stick to.
0: The Alien itself is chaotic. Suddenly class goes out the window because when it comes down to it, in a crisis situation, you do what you're able to do. And it simply comes down to ability. Jerry Goldsmith's soundscape of a score, uh, very much based on 2001. Uh, like I said, the, the, this sense of that it's, it's less music and more ambience and almost, like just almost noise to set the scene. Sunshine has been definitely influenced by it. The other one I've got down here is There Will Be Blood. If you've ever watched that, everything in that score is
2: discordant and uh, designed to keep you on edge. I really love the um, Alien score, not yeah. just because, um, as you were saying, like the ambient noise and stuff like that, which really works in horror movies uh, specifically because the score is there to create atmosphere rather than get you swept up emotionally like something like, like Star Wars, for example. Mm. Um, but also what I really respect is when they say, okay, there are moments where there is no, sa- uh, no soundtrack whatsoever. Mm. It's just the noise of the environment you're in. And there are a couple of really great moments where the soundtrack just suddenly starts again um, out of nowhere, just to add that like shock and and, yeah. and sometimes just you know a little tiny bit of tension to a scene and then you know remove it again. It, it's really tastefully done.
0: When they get to the planetoid, it's not even a planet. They do a really neat um, bit of forced perspective with the uh, actors in the spacesuits. Uh, anyone actually know what this one was? No, no. What what was it? Right, those three in the spacesuits are actually Ridley Scott's kids. (laughs) (laughs) They stuck kids who were half the size of the regular adult actors in little spacesuits and put them next to the giant models they had to make the models twice as big. So what's ten feet tall to an adult is twenty feet tall to this child, which made this whole set seem vast. Now that is using your noggin to get the most out of what you have. Genius.
5: Yeah, Yeah, because Fox weren't going to... Uh, didn't originally want to do the um, the space jockey set they didn't want to build it at all they thought it was a waste of money Yeah, and, uh, that was one way to, to get around <laughs> was to make it half the size he wanted to and then film half size people next to it the kids yeah which was a, a, a great idea. Yeah, those kids
0: are paying dividends to uh, Ridley Scott, <laughs> doubling his effects budget, effectively.
2: While we're on the subject of like the ship and the landscape... I, yeah, I just have... going to be an- another big thing for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, it looks so great, um, to think, because CGI wasn't really a major thing well, kind of not non- non-existent, 90s, really. really, yeah. I hope somebody can explain to me how they've managed to make the, the space landscape look as good as it does, and, and not just the the surface of the planet, but, like, the skyline as well, where you can see, like, uh, planets in the sky. I, I it, it just baffles me how they can make something look so good when technology was so limited at that time. Mm. I would say that uh, about 2001 as well, just... Some of the visuals in that look better than some films uh, released during the 90s. It's, mm. it's insanely good.
1: Which is crazy, uh, because I just looked that up since we mentioned it, and I couldn't remember what year. 2001 was made in 1968.
2: Jesus. I know. Pre-Woodstock. <laughs> Pre-The Moon Landing, which is even crazier if you think about it.
0: Alien was shot in Shepperton Studios. Uh, Aliens and Alien 3 were both Pinewood, which makes these three very important British-made productions. Pretty much everyone on the crew was British. The first three films were very hard to film, Alien 3 being particularly difficult and wearing, to the point where the director won't even touch the film now, uh, David Fincher. Uh, but the fourth one was a breeze, and everyone involved had a great time, and it's shit.
4: You must suffer for your art, clearly.
0: Basically, yes. I think about, uh, one of Sigourney Weaver's um, stipulations for coming back to do the Alien films, which he thought was a stupid idea because Ripley shouldn't come back, was uh, that she didn't want to suffer any pain whatsoever and she also wanted to be an exec producer.
4: And David, Ca- and, uh, David Cameron. <laughs> James Cameron wasn't allowed to come within 50 paces of... Actually, she doesn't hate
0: uh, James Cameron. She was an avatar.
4: That's the point, actually, yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, James Cameron, ha- uh, however, is Linda Hamilton's the one who's not a fan of him.
4: Was it not? Did he not hit Sigourney Weaver to make her upset about something? Or?
0: No, he had Lambert. No, that was Ridley Scott having Lambert hit her.
4: Ah, uh, right. Sorry. When she
0: smacks her when they come back in. That's a genuine smack. Back to design. They designed the Nostromo after the model builders in the Star Wars films uh, by covering the outside of the ship in bits of Airfix kits. In fact, the the landing claw that drops the shuttle off uh, is actually, if you look very carefully around the rim of it, R2-D2's legs. They got various little toy figures, took the legs off and stuck them around the outside of it. The Star Wars films and... Yeah, actually, both of these alien films have a real sort of sense of the... uh, The model work is fantastic and it feels much more real and there. So, the alien craft, or the space jockey craft... Now, we're not going to touch Prometheus... Uh, principally because we don't want to spoil it for you guys or ourselves. There, I mean, I've already seen the uh, recent trailer. One or two of you guys don't want to see the most recent trailer because it does contain a lot more information than we, you, know, you might know already about the film. I can tell you that it's set in 2085, which is 37 years before Alien, which is set in 2122. And it concerns a crew going to what appears to be the same planetoid that they're on here in Alien. And it will delve into how the hell that thing got there and what it's doing. But would you like to speculate what is inferred by what we can see and what is apparent in Alien? That's not spoiler territory. That's the storytelling through set design.
2: Well, it's kind of suggested, uh, as far as I can tell from the film, that the aliens on that ship were collecting those eggs like specimens or farming them or something like that. And, um, and it's kind of um, foretelling what's going to happen later on. Like you pick up these specimens thinking, oh, it'll be fine, we can keep them under control. Or, or more accurately, it, it kind of uh, foreshadows what will happen in aliens when the government uh, wrongly think they can control these things. Mm. And then suddenly, I, I imagine one of them gets, you know, a facehugger attaches to one of them, and suddenly, oh no, hell breaks loose and they're all, you know, dying and stuff like that. And it's, uh, but it, it's great because these aliens are clearly really advanced. You see that tech, and it it's far more advanced than anything on their ship. And mm. that alien sitting in there, that seat, is huge, it's big, it looks mm. like it could be a powerful creature. But, it died at the hands of the uh, Xenomorph, and uh, it it, se- it gives you a great sense that, right, this creature, whatever it is, is not good for anyone. Like, it doesn't matter if you're just a bunch of uh, normal people on a rickety ship. Even creatures, more advanced, more powerful than we are, couldn't deal with this thing.
0: There's speculation that the... Um space jockeys here, who for some reason remind me of both the Protheans, if you're a Mass Effect fan, and the Forerunners, if you're a Halo fan, have actually created and genetically engineered the Xenomorphs. Again, speculation, that's not a spoiler, that's just what people have been saying for many years. There seems to be some sense of connection between the two of them, because Giga designed the Xenomorph, also did all of the interior design and the the actual shape of the ship. On casual inspection, you look at the interior and it's got all that sort of like the inside of a rib cage looking walls, which is quite appropriate because what they basically did is go get huge beef bones and then decorate the set with those and then, and then lacquer and paint them black. Um, you'd imagine that it's just an, you know, a swarm of aliens have made it into one of their hives. Because when you see aliens, they, they've covered the walls in resin and made, gave it that sort of curvature. However, looking carefully at it, it's way too symmetrical, it's way too carefully designed, and it's not just the product of aliens going, we're gonna get all this shit over the walls, now this place feels more comfortable and more like home. The aliens did not do that to that ship. I believe that the aliens are actually derived from the space jockeys in some way, and that they have taken the space jockeys' particular aesthetic and architecture into their genes, and they replicate that in their cack-handed, chaotic, animalistic, insectoid fashion.
2: Um, So the xenomorph is kind of like their nuclear bomb.
0: Yeah. Sharon, you asked, is that thing he's sitting in a telescope or a gun?
2: Yes. Um,
4: The position he's in, the fact that they've speculated that he's a pilot, um, it could be like a periscope or or, or something, or... it just seemed like if it's a gun it's an odd position to put it
5: mm. inside for a start so
4: inside in the middle kind of, pointing straight upwards yeah uh, it's a
5: kind it's of viewing device N.I. rather no. than a weapon mm. yeah, yeah. Um, what, I, what I thought about the, the space jockey itself uh, they comment on it in the film is the fact it's kind of part of the chair the chair and, and the creature the, whatever it is it's sitting in are one thing it's all fused together and that kind of links in with the the interior design of the ship Mm. and I always wondered whether the ship itself has actually grown rather than built whether that's the way these things because you don't see any other hint of any other um, of the species of the space jockey anywhere there's just the one thing, and then there's mm. all the because you don't see enough of the uh, of the ship, obviously. And I they could have been all regular size. They could have been a giant one. Yeah, whether they, whether they grow into do whatever they need to do, and the ship mm. was grown around it as well.
4: You said something about organic silicon um, being part of the xenomorph's uh, physiological makeup. If well, there's...
0: Ash says that it it sheds its dead cells and
4: replaces them with silicon. Yeah, but if um, if the space jockeys have the same thing then they could quite easily be, uh, or he, if we're talking about this one individual, could quite easily be integrated into part of his machinery and his spaceship. And
0: yeah, it did seem like a fusion of, of uh, creature and machine, that, that thing. That's what, that's what Giga does. If you've ever actually looked at Giga's other art, it's fucked up. You actually got me a set of Giga Tarot cards. My one well, of my either birthday or Christmas back when we first met, and it was like, ew, you don't know me at all yet. Do you? This, this, it was like a guy putting a shotgun in his mouth that was also his cock, and a bunch was of a, a wall. Wait, the shotgun, covered... shotgun
1: was his cock, or his mouth was that?
0: No, no, the, the shotgun oh, no, was I'm his cock, and a woman with a shotgun cock boob and screaming babies stuck to a wall. Let me find the shotgun mouth cock thing. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Hang
1: on. I mean no pressure, I'm not that curious.
2: <laughs> I wonder what happens if you type shotgun cock into Google.
1: Men. <laughs> That's no, don't, um, don't turn <laughs> the search off first and Do not
2: do it. <laughs> Gun,
0: maybe, rather than shotgun?
1: Are you really just trying to avoid typing shotgun cock into Google? <laughs>
0: I don't know if it was a shot. It was actually a cock or not. I can't remember. maybe it was just a dream I had <laughs> <laughs> This one I made earlier. Oh, that's yeah. the one shot actually, that's not necessarily his cock, but he's it doesn't like look like it's attached to him. No, no, it's not actually his cock. the fool You're like you know rather than performing an unspeakable act upon this woman, he's just gonna blow his head off. So, yeah, uh, if you've ever actually seen any of his other artwork, H.R. Giger is absolutely round the twist, but he was able to contribute to this, you know, fantastic creature and, uh, indeed, the space jockeys, which should come full circle in the next couple of weeks. There's another thing about the egg chamber that Kane stumbles into. Where's the Queen... This is another thing that may be uh, uh, answered in the next few weeks, but I kind of feel like in the background, where Kane wasn't looking, there was a Queen just sort of rubbing her hands together going, come on, come on, this is going to be so sweet. (laughs) Because, uh, I mean, it's set up in almost exactly the same way as as the Queen's chamber in Aliens. (laughs) Obviously, retroactively, James Cameron set it up in the same way there. And the implication was that, the eggs were put there by someone. Because the actual, that sort of weird blue field that came, penetrated to get into to the eggs, was there, it's almost like the space jockeys set that up specifically, and much like the Predators themselves had their own queen on the ship somewhere producing them eggs.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I, ima- I don't know. I, I imagine because the queen's been there for ages without any kind of sustenance, she might be dead at this nope. point.
0: Alien versus predator. They kept frozen oh, yeah, under yeah. the ice yeah. for God knows how many years. Uh, Doesn't need food.
1: Hibernating or in some kind of hypersleep, maybe? Mm.
0: Because of their very nature being designed as this perfect adaptable creature. That's, that's the thing. They are super adaptable to the most harsh conditions. It is supposed that the aliens don't actually need to eat because you've never seen a starving alien. You've never seen them drink. Uh, They don't even seem to really have to breathe. Although the Queen has been seen as actually breathing, as though she has actual lungs. And they salivate, which means that they need the saliva in the first place, which means they require water or some sort of moisture. All just speculation.
1: I was just saying, the facehuggers kind of appear to be breathing too, or whatever it is they're doing with those kind of sacks on
4: the sides.
0: I always thought that they were helping their host...
4: Oh, well, that, that yeah. was... As as about, it uh, seems would be feeding him oxygen. Yeah, no, he doesn't. Yeah. you're right, you're right. I
0: think it's an in- incredibly thin atmosphere that they're actually... Um, they're wearing the suits to protect themselves from. But because the face actually burns through his mask, he should effectively be exposed to that. I think it's filtering the oxygen out of the air to feed him to keep him alive. Because if he dies straight away of strangulation, then he's useless to the face hugger.
5: Aliens shows us that they don't actually need to breathe because um, the alien queen hides in a outside the shuttle and makes yeah. it through the atmosphere and then through space so they clearly don't need to breathe in the same way that we do
0: yeah and when it uh, flies down when, when she kicks it out the the goddamn airlock it's screaming in space but not straight off dying and not strangulating mm. so maybe I don't know it's difficult to say here's the thing we actually all, even though we're still speculating about the alien we're still way too familiar with this creature uh, in the first Alien, you don't know anything about it, so uh, there's a scene later on where um, Brett goes looking for Jones and gets jumped by the alien. If you've not seen the film ever, or any alien ever, you wouldn't know what the creature looks like. So you, when you actually see it directly on screen, hanging around in the rafters, hanging uh, with the chains, I love you bit. don't pay attention to that bit. But if you know what the creature looks like and you're looking for it, it's right there. And then it become, they become super scary again in Aliens... Because there's loads of them... And uh, Cameron's very good with tension... It's debatable as to how scary the creature is in 3... But it's just farcical and comedic... In the last three films... The Alien is no longer scary... It's more just sort of a horror hero... Like Dracula or, or the Wolfman... So interestingly going back to... With, with Prometheus... There doesn't seem to be any real sign of the Xenomorph in there at all... Again this, doesn't, this is not spoilers... This is just what we've seen... It it seems like they're not going to even really go in, they're not going to bring the alien out and have it just go running around going batshit crazy, killing people, because that's not scary. We've seen an alien do that. If they did any other alien film, unless it goes deep into the physiology of the creature, it's just going to be playing out the same script again. Yeah, like I said, the last three specifically underline how tired this, this uh, standard is. Like, right, bring the facehugger out, now get the chest bursters out, now the newborn, now the alien suddenly... I mean, the alien also grows as the narrative sees fit. They have been known in some movies to grow in the space of an hour, in some movies to grow in the space of a few days. Just whatever they're required to. The facehugger itself... Uh, in in this first incarnation, before Cameron made it even fucking scary by getting it to actually chase you, summons up primal fears of the terrifying genitalia of the opposite sex. Basically, a facehugger is a terrifying vagina and a terrifying cock at exactly the same time, and it's shoved in your face. And it basically rapes
5: you.
2: I, I think it was a really good move having a male character Be the one who gets impregnated because the fear Mm. of like male rape as well. um, It it also makes that kind of fear more. Because we often associate rape with women being the victims, uh, but having the male character be the one who gets effectively raped in the movie means that it becomes universal for everyone. It's not. So the men can't just sit there and be relaxed. They're like, shit, this thing. Is you know directly attacking me as well, um, and it's it's just creepy. It's just creepy the idea of a creature just like using you without you being able to fight back against it. Like it's not that it's killing you or trying to eat you. It's just using it, you using you for your own its own purposes, and you're just powerless to stop it from. Just, well, impregnating you, effectively. It's just really creepy and unsettling.
0: It's totally in control, and it's based on... uh, The original script for this, Uh, I don't know if you guys have watched all of the extras, Uh, it was really boneheaded, and before... Ridley Scott and H.R. Giger came on board. This thing was going to be ridiculous, much like the original Predator, and it was just going to be a schlocky, crappy B movie. And we wouldn't be talking about it right now. They wouldn't have made sequel after sequel to it. It just would have been forgotten. The actual life cycle of this creature is based on real uh, insects and real parasites in real life. There are uh, uh, things which you know you find out about on on the Discovery Channel that, like. Um, there's various different parts of their life cycle. Like first they infect an insect and then that insect uh, gets eaten by a fish. And then with the parasite now inside the fish, the fish then is compelled to swim closer to the surface to actually seek out more sunlight, which inadvertently ends up getting the fish eaten by a bird. And then the parasite's in a bird. It's all part of the life cycle of this fucked up creature or wasps that lay their eggs in spiders. It's, if you look at the insect world, it's absolutely savage. And introducing that, uh, introducing humans to that insect world is part of the basis of what makes aliens so terrifying.
4: It's part of the basis of the uh, the title, really, if you think about it. The, the alien, it's not just alien because it's an extraterrestrial. Because technically speaking, so are they. They're out in territory that's not theirs. Um, it's alien because there's no way that they can comprehend it. It, it behaves thinks, acts, feeds, reproduces in ways they have never encountered before.
0: Hang on, I've got a really good picture coming up here. I hope I it's, it's on this screen. I with
4: a shotgun penis, I don't
1: want
0: to see it. There is no shotgun penis, I'm giving you a no shotgun penis guarantee.
1: Thank you,
6: I appreciate that.
2: However... <laughs> I just imagined a photo of Alex smiling, pointing at the screen. And just like a caption underneath, I could give you a no shotgun penis guarantee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> found it, found it, found it. Okay, if you look at this picture, it's uh, someone's made themselves their own alien poster. One giant spaceship, one terrified infant, seven ruthless aliens. And then it's alone. And the idea is that the alien you know, from from a certain point of view, could have been just trying to keep itself alive while it's being hunted down by seven things that are entirely alien to
4: it. This may be completely irre- irrelevant. You may decide to leave this out entirely. When yeah. they f- when they hear the beacon,
0: mm-hmm.
4: I think it's... Uh, Lambert says it could be a voice because they don't recognise the, the sound on the radio signal. Mm-hmm. Um, when the alien first starts to make noises it's all sort of hissing and and um looks very aggressive
0: you mean when it jumps out of cane
4: no no no. um later on when it's big okay but that sounds not wildly dissimilar to the hissing sounds that the beacon's making so it could be that the alien was just trying to communicate with them
0: <laughs> and they seemed uncommunicative, so it killed them. Yes.
4: So it, it tried to write things with their intestines. It just wanted to be friends. Yeah. It pop. just plays and a bit rough.
3: He also give them wants. A hug he also, yeah, he, also, he wants to hug Dallas in the air vents. He's like,
0: hug.
6: Just <laughs> flings
0: yeah. his arms out. Yeah. Alien pet Dallas oh, okay. too hard. Dallas pop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Back to face rape. Okay. Oh, good. <laughs> it's no. I really like what you just said there, Josh, about the, the um, it focusing on the man getting victimized in this for the first time, because um, there are uh, there are essays on what female empowerment and specifically the Ripley character in uh, this series, and starting off with one of the lead characters, but from one of the most established actors, both then and now, um, being. Killed in a horrible way and victimized to hell is a perfect flip of that bit in Alien vs. Predator Requiem with the pred alien in the hospital going mental. The alien has no gender specific to itself, uh, except for possibly the queen, which is most definitely a bitch. But the actual crew are, it is irrelevant, and it's actually very specifically written that any of the characters could have been male. All female. Yeah,
1: that's what I was Rip- just going to say. Isn't it? Wasn't it a, a kind of a, a thing that 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 was the case? That originally they were all just y- you could go either way, and originally they the only one that they had never really envisioned being a woman was actually Ripley.
0: Mm. Very specifically, it's like Shepard; mm. uh, they are interchangeable. So um, any inferring of female empowerment in this film is entirely coincidental. Now, Aliens is totally different because James Cameron took a female character that had already been proven to be strong and turns her into the avenging mother. And that is... It's a fantastic character development. But the female empowerment in this film was effectively arbitrary. It is simply Ripley surviving, whether it is a she or a he.
1: Now let me put this out there and see, see what everybody else thinks, but that may have been the case... As the film is written,
4: mm-hmm. do you
1: think that it changed at all as the roles were cast and as the film was actually filmed? I mean, it, is it possible that it it gained some meaning after... You
6: when know, Sigourney started playing was? it.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not saying that it was or it wasn't. I'm just wondering if that might have been the case.
4: I don't think she plays the character in this is going to sound really stupid given what we've already said about the whole empowerment thing, but I don't think she plays it in a, a particularly feminine way, for want of a better word. Um, it's it, the nuances that she brings to the character, the uh, the fact that she sort of has this quiet capability about her to the point where she her emotions are pushed and she snaps. That's right. something that could just as easily have applied to a male character.
1: I oh, that makes sense. I mean, the only and it sounds awful again but I mean if if anybody is stereotypically feminine it's Lambert who falls Mm. apart
4: Mm. just the screaming and waving
0: Lambert's actually not too bad she bitches and moans but we'll talk about Lambert at the end but Lambert's being paralysed with fear is very specifically characterising her as a weak woman you're right
4: it characterises her as a weak person but to be honest with you I don't think she whinges and moans any more than say Brett does really I mean he does it in a quieter way but he's still got that sort of weak, vulnerable, um, uh, complaining I attitude.
0: It, it's Actually, it's, it's not specifically that she's a woman, but Parker is very specifically going macho. And it's like, I'm going to kill it, I'm going to kill it. Get out of the way so I can use the flamethrower. And she's like, no, I can't even move. I'm so paralysed with fear. And she gets killed in the most horrible way possible. And so does Parker, because of her inaction. Like a useless woman. I'm not entirely sure that that was what they were going for there. They certainly weren't saying all women are useless because uh, Ripley's fantastic afterwards, but Lambert basically just, the bottom drops out of her character. Literally.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) (laughs) poor. Um, I think, though, the the fact that she essentially is just allowed to survive in her own way, that is a really... (laughs) Positive form of female empowerment because it's not, um, you know, compare it to something like, say, for example, teeth, mm. where the fee it's, that that is also female empowerment, but it is very specifically a feminine form of female empowerment. Whereas Ripley's empowerment is simply of the of the capacity of here's the tools you've got, live the best way you can, and I think that's that's human empowerment more than Female empowerment, specifically.
0: If you want to be super interpretive, you could say that she uh, gets confronted with a terrifying giant cock and then throws it out of the airlock. Indeed.
4: Say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Right, so back to dinner and the, um, the chest-bursting scene. This taps into, again, another primal fear, which is fear of pain during childbirth. And again, it's fantastic that it actually happens to a man. If it happened to a woman, again, I'm not entirely sure that this would actually have been the classic that it actually was. Back in seventy nine, they had no clue what was going to happen. They were very careful and very clever about what they did with the marketing. They never hinted that this might actually be the case. Um, But Scott didn't actually tell them exactly what he was going to do. I think he said that... um, you know, we're, we're gonna. That, that Kane's going to um, give birth to an alien, and the uh, alien's gonna run off, and you guys are gonna be horrified. What he didn't tell them was when the alien turns up, you're going to be showered with real life pig awful. So when Veronica Cartwright gets a spray of blood in the eye, that's real blood, and that's a real reaction of horror and surprise.
6: The film
2: uh, deliberately does a close-up on each of the actors' faces, and it's great because everyone's reaction looks really genuine, as you were saying before. its it, I don't know what it is. It's just something in each of their eyes. Is like, what the hell did Ridley Scott just do to us, the bastard? <laughs> uh, it's just great piece of filmmaking. Yeah.
0: And if there's no music, there's no sort of da, na, 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 tension. It's just it, he seems like he's just having a fit, and you don't know what's going to actually happen. It's just again, trying to watch this in a vacuum in my mind, um, and it's really upsetting. Even now, even after we've seen all the films that came afterwards, Hurt's performance actually seems like a man who is dying in absolute agony. It's chilling.
2: I don't want to talk about no. it, though. I'm this. What's the
6: matter? <laughs> the food ain't You
0: And it's the only gory moment of this entire film. You take this moment out, most of the rest of the film would be a PG-13. I didn't even realise it until I watched it yesterday. I was like, you know what? The the whole facehugger scene, PG-13. Brett getting snatched away, PG-13. Dallas in the tunnels, PG-13. What happens to Parker and Lambert... Maybe take that one shot of the alien's tail and exactly what's going to happen out of that and just make it that the alien's bearing down on her yeah. and then cut to the, the, the sound that Ripley running down the hall when she can hear what's going on. They, they didn't have to do that tail there anyway, and I think that's going a bit too far anyway. Uh, again, you, you could recut that and make it PG-13 and not butcher it. And I think you'd probably have to take away the whole Dallas flamethrower thing from the uh, director's cut. Which is what gave me hope that Prometheus would actually be able to just about scrape by on a PG-13. As it turns out, it's an R. For all these years, I was hearing it's going to be... They're making an Alien prequel again. They're making a remake of Alien. They're doing a sequel to Alien. And it turned out to end up being Prometheus. But it's going to be PG-13 to get the biggest audience. And all the way up to like the last few weeks. And then suddenly they're like, we're not going to change the film. It's an R. So be it. And the last R-rated summer blockbuster was The Matrix... Reloaded. That was an R? That was an R.
1: I guess I didn't realize it, because there are no other Matrix movies than the first one. What
0: movies do you speak of with this (laughs) Matrix Reloaded? Finding the creature, and immediately after you've seen this incredibly upsetting scene where the entire audience is shaken, they're all just extremely matter-of-fact about it. No one's emotional about it. No one's crying. No one's weeping for Kane. In fact, it's really impersonal. They just fire this mummified corpse out into space like he was so much garbage. I think that really got to me, even when I saw it when I was 12. I was like, whoa, that's what they do to him? Not even like, like you know, of all of us, he was the most human. None of that. You just fire him out into space, fine. And this film doesn't get emotional. Very specifically, uh, uh, queuing up with um, Jerry Goldsmith's score, there are no big sweeping emotions in that. No one gets emotional in this film, apart from when Lambert loses it and starts crying and sobbing.
4: That's not emotion in the sense that you mean it, though. That's stress.
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, Ripley gets angry.
4: Again, Specifically at
0: Mother. But there's never any sort of emotion. It's not like Sunshine. Is what I'm saying, and uh, it makes the film feel a lot more cold. So again, when you're a kid watching it, there's a lot less that you can really um, relate to. But as you get older and watch it, you can realise that it's this sense of industry that has seeped into the entire production, and that they're doing this job, and they have to keep their heads cool because otherwise they're going to die because space is so hostile. And now that they've got this creature running around the place, they're like, right, I guess we've got to deal with it.
4: I think they would ultimately be prepared for the death of, of crew members. Hmm. what they're doing is likely to be a fairly dangerous um, job,
1: yeah, but even still
4: yeah. being prepared that
1: for death of, yeah that's what I was going to say The being prepared for the death of crew members is one thing, being prepared for that. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think I think when you're in survival situations, maybe you get into the mindset where you're like, "We'll grieve for friends after we've dealt with this shit 1st Or I'll like, cry
0: when I'm
5: done killing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Basically, <Sorry>. yeah, <laughs> but yes, not, not quite
4: like
5: One, that, but yeah. No, but with with the, the the lack of emotion when they they um, put Kane's body out of, into space, none of them really seem to particularly like each other. They get along, and mm. uh, Parker and Brett are. To a, yeah, fairly close because they're effectively segregated by the rest of the crew they only get a half share they're just basically spanner monkeys that are down in the bowels of the ship so in they fact, have to get along Matt, everyone Dallas. else just tolerates each other they're never really that much apart from when they're eating mm. is the only time that you really see any actual closeness no one seems to like Ripley that much other than Dallas and he's not you know he's fairly standoffish because he's the captain mm. uh, they're there they're to do a job they, they sleep for most of the journey they wake up they do a job they get back they get paid mm. and that's it they're, they're not friends they're just colleagues
0: they're getting by on the bare minimum again the, the whole film seems to be sort of like you know it costs us 10% of what we make um, to send these people out and bring all of this uh, mineral ore back we don't want to go 1% over that so everyone's going to have to survive on the bare minimum and you know these are the rules if you violate that you violate your contract you don't get your shares yeah. So yeah, it's all scraping by, just about barely surviving. And that pervades through all of the films. There's no bright spot at the centre of the universe. There's no lovely place to go. There's just desolation and isolation. The only bit of warmth is found between Ripley and Newt and Ripley and Hicks. And then that gets shattered thanks to some fucking shit writing at the beginning of Alien 3. But yeah, when Brett goes to uh, look for Jones and it ends up in this vast cooling tower room or something like that, uh, there's these hanging chains. And the hanging chains are in, I think, every single Alien film, including AVPR, the last and least. The chains themselves are functional items. They happen to make it look fantastically creepy, but in a kind of an abandoned factory way of looking at it, rather than a haunted house.
4: Why is that... That might be a completely pointless line of inquiry, but why do hanging chains make things look creepy and weird? You tell me. It
0: we you know, we know about the alien. It hangs around in the ceiling. There's lots of dark shadows there, the chains the chains allow it much easier access to be able to swoop down on you.
2: I think I, what Sharon's saying, though, is that it goes beyond this film as well. Uh, just chains in horror movies. Uh, I'm thinking of Hellraiser in particular, where chains are prominent. Um, what is it about chains that are kind of creepy? Because they are. They are kind of creepy. They add some kind of, I don't know, disorder, kind of chaotic. I, not chaotic. That's the wrong word. I. I don't know what it is. they just feel very soulless and mechanical. And:
0: Well, how about this? They're, they're metal that's been shaped into an organic shape, the loop, and then bound over and over again in a way that doesn't exist in nature for that substance anywhere.
2: Too far? <laughs> no no I think it's something actually right. it's kind of like it's like what we were talking about with um, HR Giger the idea of uh, machine meshing with nature so maybe that's what it is and that's also links into the themes of these movies the idea of something mechanical and organic
0: because it's mostly silicon the alien has actually become part of the ship and part of the ship has become the alien it it has to have absorbed its mass from somewhere it doesn't eat anyone it doesn't eat the cat it has it replaces its body with silicon but it has to be getting the the atoms from somewhere so my theory is that it's eating bits of the ship in some way
2: when you see a close up of its mouth its teeth actually appear to be metallic Metal, yeah. 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 yeah which you'd think is completely absurd but actually uh, there are examples of insects in nature that form their cocoons out of iron really interesting so although it's weird it is actually possible for that creature to have uh, metallic uh, bone structure and uh, teeth Mm.
0: which uh, again if it's actually absorbing what's around it it makes perfect sense that it would actually uh, be it would take on the properties of its environment, and it's, it'd be fascinating to see an alien that uh, was, you know, grown in the woods uh, by someone, you know, written by someone who actually gave a fuck about the actual uh, writing of it, uh, you know, developing differently from this alien. Like for example, the, the aliens in ABPR uh, are born in the woods, and they don't give a, they're exactly the same. So uh, it, there was no particular care or attention given to the life cycle there. But, um...
4: There is, in the, the physiology and the um, reproductive patterns and um, swarming patterns of the way the aliens behave later on, I know we're not talking about that in depth here, um, mm. but they basically you could envision them as extremely large and very, very aggressive ants. Or wasps. Um, well, I'm thinking ants specifically because of the... Um, the exoskeletons and the, the carapace, the, nat- the carapace, the nature of the queen, um, and also when you were you were saying about the, um, you know, where where is the queen that this alien is is building a nest for, and the whole idea that the um, the gender is is very ambiguous apart from the queen, who's very obviously female. Mm. If they are patterned after ants, then they would all be female and. A female might be able to morph into a queen if there is no queen nearby. Mm. So that would allow for that to happen without, you know, it needing necessarily drones xenomorphs or anything like that.
0: That's a fine point. The um, the one that actually is inside Ripley in Alien Three is a queen. Now my theory was that when a queen knows that. That they may not survive, it lays two eggs, one of them with a regular face hugger for a, to create a drone, and one of them with a queen face hugger, or a, a face hugger with a queen egg in it, that can create another like itself. Or just that if a face hugger knows there are no other uh, aliens around, or uh, other creatures of its type around, then it selects a queen egg and then uses that first, so that any first alien on the scene will be a queen.
5: The, the expanded universe actually answered that one, um, I think, before Alien 3 came out, which is oh, wow. that any drone can undergo a, a hormone storm, which is something that happens in nature as well. There's certain fish that can change gender um, just spontaneously. If they need a male, then a female will become male, and that was the idea that uh, the expanded universe came up with. Mm. So a, a drone that, that you know, has no ability, you know, just is a drone, and is on its own, will become a queen and start laying eggs. And that's very interesting because they
0: must have gotten hold of the, um, the original novel of Alien uh, and the original script features the uh, scene with Dallas at the end. Now, the scene with Dallas at the end is somewhat contrary to the rest of the film and what we know about a, a drone on its own. It would appear that this alien on its own is creating itself a, a little hive and it's not entirely clear what's happened to Brett it's up for interpretation if they're chosen to go with it they could have actually had somehow had the alien impregnate Brett and then create another which could have stowed away on the Narcissus at the end
4: is he not there as well I thought Brett was I thought you see Brett covered over in the wall too
0: no no Brett is there but it's it's, it's not apparent whether he has been burst open or whether his head's been caved in the alien's eaten his brain
6: right
0: uh, but Dallas is still definitely alive but he's, he's you know kill me but here's the thing: Why would Dallas say, "Kill me"? Ah! If he wasn't impregnated, why would he not just say, "Literally, get me the fuck out of here"? And here's a really fucked up thing: the tongue, that sort of boom thing, that second more that they have, they tend to go for the head a lot, and they go for the sort of the, the top right of it. But it, they don't necessarily kill you with that. It's possible they just lobotomize you so that you'll make a better host and you won't struggle so much and you'll live just long enough for the chestburster to
2: emerge that's actually I hate to bring this film up but um, in Alien Resurrection that mm-hmm. actually happens uh, Alien creeps up behind some guy shoots him, he's still alive and able to pick the piece of brain out oh it's Dan
0: out. Hedaya, yeah, and he picks a piece of brain out of his head it's yeah. ridiculous yeah that kind of occurred to me, the notion that either the drone doesn't know what it's doing and it's just preparing these guys for a queen that isn't there, or the drone is actually starting to undergo a hormone storm anyway. This is us interpreting something which they didn't know at the time, really, was going to be the physiology. They didn't even know about the queen at that point. It took James Cameron to come up with it. Um, But uh, again, now we have to sort of retroactively go back and reinterpret Alien now knowing what we do know about the life cycle. So when Dallas is in the tunnels going back a little bit, uh, this, very much like The Descent, has anyone seen The Descent?
2: Yes, very it's good horror movie. Fantastic.
0: Uh, by Neil Marshall, um, director of Centurion. It, it like this, preys on your... Uh, uh, so again, very primal fears: of claustrophobia, fear of the dark, fear of suffocation, fear of mutilation. It's all you know, cramped and tight and horrible. And with that motion tracker, just adding to the tension. And, mini, mini, mini. and also, it's an it's a useless motion tracker. It has no sense of which direction it's coming from, or whether it's above or below. And they don't whether
4: even. It's up- a six-foot alien or a one-foot cat.
0: Yeah, they don't even update it that much in
2: fifty-seven years. We've got better motion trackers than that now. I was going to say this is the one thing that dates most movies, and it's technology. Mm. Like they're capable of interstellar flight, yet our computers on our phones are more advanced than the computers running their ship.
0: Yeah, looking at it, Mother and all of those sort of readouts some things, and the one thing that was missing was a goddamn daisy wheel printer. <laughs> Uh, that
5: but was yeah. under the desk. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I think, that in a way, that that makes it date less now than if mm-hmm. they tried to come up with something futuristic, which would have been utterly bullshit and would have looked awful. That just looks old and used and worn, and sort of fits yeah. in mm. fairly well with the whole uh, industrial design of the ship.
6: Mm.
5: Also, they Did thought, we well, we, th- we can't we can't guess what it'll be like in a hundred and two hundred years. Let's just use the computers we've got now. Yeah.
1: Do we ever find out anywhere in the film how long they have been gone, like when they actually set out for this mission?
5: Ripley
0: says that she promised her daughter she would be back for her birthday. Now, that means... Okay, that kind of kicked,
1: kicked my theory in the ass, so... Uh, were you going
0: to say it was going to be years and years?
1: I mean, it could be, because if we never really find out how the hypersleep works, then if they're in some kind of suspended animation, maybe this stuff was brand new when they were shot out into space, and now that they're coming back, <laughs> I, you, I mean...
0: It suddenly is... Tell, is tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I, you, ultimately, I'm wrong, things become old tech these <laughs> yeah. days... The second that you open the box, so maybe so. But I think the original flight of the Nostromo was supposed to take about seven months.
4: You you wouldn't send somebody out for resources that were going to take 20 years to bring back.
0: (laughs) Someone brings back a shipment of coal. I've got it. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake.
1: Thanks, guys. Appreciate that.
0: It's really well handled, and even today, even though you know that it's not going to be an especially gory scene, which is actually quite refreshing to watch a horror movie where they don't go, look, he pulled his guts out through his ass, and he pulled his eyes out through his mouth. It's fantastic to just see the growing tension, and then the explosion of culmination, and then done.
2: Well, this it- film understands that What happens in your imagination Mm. is far scarier than anything they can show you. Mm. And um, not just in this scene, but throughout the movie, they actually barely show you the alien. Like, there's quick shots of it, and then they go away. You get close-ups on its face, but you never get a full shot of it for any extended period of time, Mm. which makes your imagination fill in the gaps about what this creature is capable of and what it's doing to Dallas in that tunnel. Um, it's a really effective, and I wish more horror movies um, went back to that. I know some, there are some recent examples. Apparently, uh, Woman in Black is really good at that, but um, it, it's more... Recently, it feels like more horror movies are like, look at the blood, look at the guts, which quite honestly isn't actually scary. That's not what's scary. What's scary is building that tension.
0: Building an oppressive surrounding so that when you close your eyes, you feel surrounded by that and you feel fear. So... That's the sort of thing that, like, the woman in black actually kept me up several nights after I'd seen it because I was just like, Ugh. I was afraid to close my goddamn eyes. I slept with a light on, not a word of lie. It genuinely affected me. It's, it's about making the most use of shadows and the shadows in your mind can kind of fill in all of that shit for you.
4: I think that is kind
1: of the reason that I really, and to this day, still prefer Alien over Aliens because it's... And the the more recent comparison that I've heard, and I heard it a lot, was um, that it Dead it's,
0: Space and Dead yes, Space Two.
1: Exactly, yes. And I have the same reaction to those two. I've always preferred the first Dead Space over Dead Space Two because there's two types, very broad types of horror and it's the kind that smacks you in the face and makes you run and is very upfront with how it's scary and, and that's not to say that that can't be scary because it absolutely can and there are plenty of examples where that is terrifying but there's also the kind that kind of creeps in and makes you think about it and worms its way into your head and I find that personally to be infinitely more terrifying mm-hmm. and that that's what Alien does and that's what the first Dead Space does and that's that's any of the horror films, and I, I've seen a lot, but any of the horror films that I would consider to be my favorites, that's what they do. And that's, I, yeah,
2: scary. Mm. It's about making your skin cruel at just yes. the thought of it. It's not about the shock scare. Shock scares are short term fear. What you want to create is long term fear, which you can't do with sudden explosions of guts and blood and stuff like that. You have to build it gradually.
0: Blood. Dread you're talking here. Dread is not not something that you can build with something And I think we've already discussed this at some point in one of the podcasts, that the most artful way uh, a horror maker can actually instill fear is to genuinely disturb and affect people. Often you can do that in PG-13 or really low-rated movies because of what the the mind can actually accomplish, which uh, you don't need to with effects if you're doing that. The next one down from there is to uh, use jump scares where, you know, really uh, at their best are exceptional buildings of tension, then yeah which uh, the, the Dallas uh, scenario is mm-hmm. and then the next one down from that is just to make you feel sick, which is what most of the Saw movies and what most of the Eli Roth's output uh, <laughs> and uh, Alien vs. Predator Requiem manages.
4: That, it's, it's a distinction between those three categories though that Stephen, Stephen King was talking about years and years ago. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was, I, I can't remember what the book was, but he, he wrote some essays on how he writes. I'm uh, writing. Uh, th- Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, but he, he sort of distinguishes between um, terror, which as a, as, as a professional writer of horror is sort of the pinnacle that he is trying to achieve, but he says he's not, <laughs> he basically says, I'm not proud. If I can't terrify you, then I will try to horrify you. If I can't horrify you, then I'll just go for grossing you out.
0: The synthetic and this is uh, Ian Holmes performance here and the uh, effects and all sort of culminating in uh, ash being revealed and it comes at the exact time when you when Ripley is betrayed by mother and is told that the crew's expendable and you suddenly the you start to realize how manipulated they've been into this and how almost they couldn't escape from this fate that's been handed to them the company knew about this ship the company sent them there and just they just happened to go back past this thing no they knew that they were going to be going in there investigating, they needed to bring one of those creatures back so already suddenly you hate the company, you hate computers and you don't trust anything mechanical and then one of the people you just assumed was a person happens to reveal that he's an extremely good synthetic and Ridley Scott does androids, synthetics and replicants very bloody well defective Replicants. Have you guys all seen Blade Runner?
6: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Roy Batty and Pris, all the synthetics in that seem murderous, but in a kind of way where it's like a program has just dropped them into this mindset. And when Ash decides to kill Ripley, he's kind of, he's fiddling with his fingers and just sort of looking for what's the most practical way to dispatch her at this point. It's genuine. I mean, he. Could, um, there are other ways he could have tried to kill Whippy, but he goes, "Hmm, a magazine," and he just. He, he does it so coldly and so mechanically. And Ian Holmes' performance here is chilling. He's more scary than
2: the alien in this film. It's the <laughs> soullessness part of it. It's mm. like there's nothing in his eyes, which is kind of more scary than somebody who's doing it with purpose or intent. It's mm. just like I'm doing it. Because, um, and um, and especially when he gets goes all crazy and defective as well, it's kind of like, um, like when a like a factory or a machine has just gone mental. Like somebody's mm. pushed the wrong button, and it's just not working the way it should be, and just acting out violently. And it doesn't know what it's doing. It, it's just completely without purpose. It's really, I, I don't know what it is about that. I think it is, as you were saying. Ian Holmes' performance is just so great in that scene, and it's chilling.
0: I like. I really like the fact that Michael Fassbender has been chosen as the uh, flagged synthetic. You know from the get-go that he's uh, he's a synthetic in this. I suspect one of the other crew might be a hidden synthetic in this. It's set thirty years before Alien, so David, as he's named, is actually brand new, fresh off the line, and they're billing it in Prometheus like he's the new iPod, or he's the, the new iPod 5, like he's slightly better than the previous model, David, and they're making him kind of a um, an accessory to your crew that will get the job done in a way that will make you feel not too uncomfortable.
4: I could live with an iPod that was Michael Fassbender. <laughs> you
1: know, I wouldn't complain.
4: <laughs> Dude, he's Magneto!
1: Yeah? And? <laughs>
0: point. <laughs> <laughs> it just interestingly um, Ian Holm reminds me of uh, Paul Bettany in this, and if uh, if Bettany had turned up as a uh, synthetic in, in other of these films, I'd have been, yep, absolutely excellent choice. It's that way he sort of you know just sort of switches off. Um, anyone else on Ash before we get to the point where he's got a severed head?
4: I think the reason that a defective synthetic is um, unnerving. Um, is for the same reason that proper insanity is often unnerving because it is so completely unpredictable Um, and a a, a synthetic and android replicant whatever format it happens to take in that particular film um, is supposed to be it's supposed to do what it's programmed to do and if if Ash's behavior had been consistent with, this is his pre-programming, this is his instruction from mother, um, then I think that would have been less creepy than just the complete flip out that occurs. Um, if, his, if he'd decided that the um, crew expendable is not the same thing as murder the crew, I think that's what I'm... I'm getting at, and yeah. that's what's so incredibly uh frightening almost about the fact that he he chooses to do that yeah
0: he's made his calculations and worked out that if he just tries to keep this creature alive they're going to stop him, so he's he just the, the calculation simply comes up well got to get rid of Ripley first, and then we'll get rid of the other two and it's not scheming he doesn't he doesn't laugh, he doesn't cackle, and even looking at him when he freaks out, you'd imagine that was total overacting. He's flinging himself all over the place, but he's still frightening as hell. Yeah. Played that part so, so well. I was...
3: like, Putting myself back when I first watched it, um, Mm. I was just like, Jesus, I can only imagine what people were feeling watching this back in uh, 79. I I was pretty terrified back then.
0: Did you know he was synthetic back then?
3: Uh, Well, not until... Not until, obviously, it was revealed that he was, but... Oh, so when it happened, that was a surprise to you? Yes, a massive surprise. I was like, oh, uh, okay, Jesus.
4: (laughs) See, I I always feel like it's flagged, but then because I saw Aliens first, I knew from the get-go. Yeah, she says
0: that the the last one was... uh, Yeah,
4: Um, but also there's... um, Because I think one of them, is it... Is it Parker actually says, oh, Ash was a a synthetic, who would have thunk, or or words to that Mm. effect. Um, But there's a a bit earlier on where um, Ripley says something to him about it's it's the fact that he overrode the quarantine thing and and let them in. She says something like, pretty heavy decision for a science officer to make. And the emphasis on science officer, I always thought, was that she knows he's synthetic and she's basically implying, isn't this a little bit above your remit to be making those
2: decisions? It's it's kind of like watching Fight Club after knowing what happens.
4: Yeah, it's impossible to extricate. You know, would you have known that if you hadn't known that?
2: Wait, Mm. what?
4: Wait, what happens in Fight Club?
2: Uh, Well, let's not spoil it.
1: I I am kidding. I'm kidding.
4: (laughs) They're all penguins. Oh shit! My mind is blown.
0: (laughs) Okay. Now, here's the thing. This is the only one frame where the effects really fall down. And it's not even the effects that are poor at this point. It's the editing. It cuts from Sigourney Weaver manhandling a fake human head to clearly Ian Holm with you know his head through a hole in the table. Now, we as viewers will accept the transition from one to the other. We know that they can't actually pull, pull Ian Holm's head off. And still expect
4: him to be barbaric. able to talk.
0: Uh, and then, well, I mean, they could do the performance first and then pull his head off, but but it actually does not cut away between the two. It's just a straightforward thing with just one flick cut, and the lighting's different as well. And just every time we watch I that, know. we both mutter "seamless" because yeah. it's the least seamless transition I've ever seen. In effect. I,
3: I actually picked up on that uh, rewatching it today. I was just like, oh god! Oh, obviously, not- it would have been harder to pick up uh, back then, but the fact that I was watching it on Blu-ray.
0: Uh you can you can tell that you know, miles off. But oh, Yeah, this is like this is basic filmmaking. Not just filmmaking, it's ma- magic one oh one. If you wanna be a magician, use misdirection. You cut to a shot of Parker fiddling with something, and then you cut back to the actual shot of Ian Hong just to just to smooth over the joint. And what astonishes me is that in two thousand and three when accomplished filmmaker Ridley Scott went back to recut his film, he went, yeah, that's right? <laughs> <laughs> What's the problem? As, as no, no one who's saying, Ridley, you wouldn't want to just like just put one shot there. It's it's making a huge fuss out of a tiny thing, but it's it. Well, just, just also, fun.
2: there's no reason why they couldn't just cut straight to them talking to the guy. What do they need to actually place the head on the table, just so you know, oh, All right, they set up the head there, so. Uh, Well, no, it's a magic
0: trick. Look, It was a head, and now it's talking. How freaked out are you people? Well, not so much, because we saw the join.
2: I mean,
1: if that had been a good edit, it would have been amazing. But Yeah.
0: yeah. We've talked way too long about this one tiny bit, but the actual scene that comes afterwards is, again, really chilling, because the distortion in his voice, and the fact that he's dribbling and covered in milk, the whole... I admire its purity thing. He's, he's still... He's totally unrepentant. There's no reason for him to be repentant. It's not an emotion that he was programmed to feel. That whole kind of, you know, don't fancy your chances, but all the good it does. Oh, I was like, you have my pity?
2: Or you, have have my sh- sympathy.
0: you have my sympathies. Mm-hmm. It's such a fuck you. <laughs> okay, fantastic. And, and, and the fact that they bring it back for Alien 3 actually makes that film you know better. There's a brilliant reversal between Ash and Bishop but Lance Henriksen looks incredibly sinister and untrustworthy and turns out to have a heart of gold.
2: Whereas Ian Holmes is Bilbo, and just Bilbo.
0: You love Bilbo, and he turns out to be absolutely stone cold.
4: Ash, can you hear me? Ash! (laughs) Yes, I can
6: hear What was your special order? You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back life form. Priority one. All other priorities rescinded. There's a damn company. What about our lives, you son of a bitch? I repeat, all other priorities are rescinded. How do we kill it, Ash? There's got to be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? You can't. Bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity, survival. I'm clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I'm, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Not What? I can't lie to you about your chances, but... you have
0: my sympathies. They attempt to escape, and this is when Lambert becomes paralysed with fear. I'm not sure what we can really say about this thing. It seems kind of like, well, let's just get rid of the last two members of the crew. They're kind of cluttering up. We need to ramp up the tension at this point. Again, it could have been any of them could have turned out to be the, the hero, but I think you've spent enough time now with Ripley, and the fact that she goes back for the cat was sort of the acid test. That was either the dumbest thing she could possibly do, the most illogical thing that immediately gets her killed, and you're like, stupid woman, why did you go back for the cat? Or the redeeming human, emotionally driven thing she does that makes her the heroine of this film. Also
3: as well, um, I'm not sure ever this would be true but the fact that she went back for the cat because obviously she's trying to escape she probably knew um... Kind kind of what might happen. So she didn't want to be alone, just in case she does go into sleep and wakes up somewhere completely different. She's not on her own if she has the cat. Otherwise, she would completely lose her mind. But I think that's looking a bit sort
0: of forward. you were going to say the cat's piloting the shuttle. So I, I got this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, uh, my interpretation of this is, is it is illogical. She should just leave the cat and calculate it like a machine and go. Look, we don't need the cat. But she's lost. Dallas, she's lost Kane. she's lost Brett, and she's trying to retain something. She's trying to re-exert control and say, you're not getting everyone.
3: Yeah. yeah. I, I would agree with that, more.
4: <laughs> I think also the fact that she is on her own at that point. It's... <sighs> It could be seen as sort of a way to try and focus herself and calm herself and and be doing something. Um, Because although, as we said when we were watching it, she is supposed to be prepping the shuttle, there's only so much of that you can do, and then you are simply sitting there twiddling your thumbs until you accept the fact that your colleagues are not coming back and they're probably dead. So I think part of it is she just wants to be doing something.
0: Also, if you want to start debating the logic of why she goes back to get the cat, do you want to debate the logic of having a cat on a fucking spaceship?
1: Cats are awesome.
0: Cats are indeed awesome. Chewing on the power cable. The thing's are Minoc. It's just there, waiting to get stuck in an air vent, a vital air vent, I might add. The reason Lister gets... No, uh, you won't get this particular reference, Leah. The reason Lister gets uh, imprisoned in Red Dwarf is for having an unlicensed cat on board. Because if it can, it can get into the air vents and suddenly you find you're flying at three million miles an hour backwards.
4: Well, ships have cats to keep the vermin down.
0: Do you see any space mice in this thing?
4: No, maybe that's the point. Yeah, Jones is really good.
0: Really
2: effective <laughs> house hunter.
0: We're going to have to assume that in the future, the space mice really... I mean, there's not one robot that can actually fit, find them in the way that Jones does. He is a good ratter.
5: They're space hamsters, actually, as proved by Mass Effect. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say that. <laughs> space <laughs> hamsters. The
0: Serious heads-on, fellas. But you have Space three hamsters
1: right. from uh, Baldur's Gate. I think that's that's the, the more old-school reference. Anybody who gets that gets a high-five. Anybody? I get it. Thank you. High-five.
5: Don't <laughs> get it, but I just wanted to see it. Oh,
6: it! God
1: damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Play Baldur's Gate. That's all I have to I, say. Well,
0: I played Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, and then somebody no, just... No, no. I, Stop
1: different, it. Different oh, thing.
0: So then there's the countdown... I mean, the whole mother being this, um, not malevolent, but totally... A computer that bears you... And that's not even ill will. A computer that doesn't actually care if you die is up there with uh, Hal, uh, the computer that uh, decides it's going to kill you.
6: Wow, well,
1: see, I disagree. I completely disagree. I think that... It, it, this, this It actually surprised me a little bit that... Or not Not surprised me, but it was something that I took notice of that... Not necessarily all the films up to this point, but if you just think as a general rule... If you have a film, a science fiction film or a horror film or whatever, and there's an AI, one of two things is going to happen with that AI by the end of the film or piece or whatever. Either the AI is going to go evil, or the AI is going to have some triumphant thing where it saves your life, and it doesn't happen here. The AI is just an AI. There is nothing particularly malevolent or benevolent about it. It just does what it does. It's not... It, it, it doesn't display any human characteristics. It's just there. It does what it's programmed to do.
0: This is me interpreting every time a computer is obstinate with me as it being evil and trying to fuck up my day. As other <laughs> being evil and trying to fuck up Ripley's day. You but are, she's
1: not. I mean, she's... Uh, Hal, you know, that, that would be the obvious comparison. Hal... Yeah, that, that's evil. I mean, that's, that's
0: something that
1: is, yeah, or, or GLaDOS, or um, in the other direction, uh, I was thinking um, Edie from Mass Effect. Mm. I mean, you know, she, she goes the complete opposite direction. But if you have an AI in one of these types of stories, whatever form that story happens to take, it's not, it, it's almost never just a neutral force.
4: They're going to do something with that.
0: Sunshine it was entirely neutral. It was it had a compassionate voice, but it didn't decide to kill or save anyone.
4: Okay. Well I mean that's Sunshine takes a lot of its
1: cues from alien, I think. Right. Cool. And that's what I'm saying. I I'm not saying it never happens, I'm just saying that it's rare.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you, you're not going to have an onboard AI, unless it's going to feature somewhat heavily in the actual right. uh, the MacGuffin pushing of the right, film. and they
1: could very easily have had Mother turn out to be completely evil, you know, and or they could have gone the other way around and had Mother fighting the alien right along right along with the rest of the crew, but they didn't. They just left Mother as a a as a neutral thing, yeah, well, as, it, as a machine.
2: Computers essentially are just idiots who own the world's largest library. Like- <laughs> that's going on the uh, the memes (laughs) It's, it's they're not they don't actually know anything they just have access to an infinite amount of information so like you know when you're struggling with a computer and it's not doing what you want it's like an idiot who's desperately trying to find that volume in its massive library you know it's I like that the computer is portrayed as just this thing that's not necessarily that helpful all the time, just like modern computers are now.
1: Oh, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. In fact, I think it's more realistic oh, no, no, than that, a lot of the other yeah, stuff, yeah. but it's, it's, it's just, it's notable, I think.
5: Well, Mother is, is just a computer. Not She's not, you know, she's not attempt, it's not in any way an attempt to, to, to make a, a personality. It's just a computer. It can't be reasoned with or anything. Mm. Which is why... Well, it doesn't feel pity! <laughs> well, you Sorry. can't... Ripley's pleading with, with the computer to, to cancel the self destruct, but she was too late. She was too slow. By like, a set. can't be cancelled. Yeah. With Ash, the, the possibility would have been there to to, to appeal to his logic. You can't do that. Mother is just a computer. It's just a very good one with a, a, a voice activated interface. That's it. Yeah.
0: So after the countdown when she finally gets back into the... uh,
5: There's the whole... She goes back... uh,
0: She goes down the ship. She can't get into the Narcissus because the alien's blocking her way. So she goes back to try and turn off the uh, self-destruct system and then it doesn't work. So she goes back again. It's just kind of to ramp up the tension. It doesn't actually move the story forward. It just... It kind of shows that Ripley can't rely on technology or or any one person because the rest of the crew fail her and the ship fails her and mother fails her and eventually it's just, it's just a case of her having to get she, she gets back into the uh, Narcissus simply because the alien's buggered off
1: well, she it would not do been, anything uh,
0: spectacular to get rid of it
1: it wouldn't have been nearly as exciting if she'd taken off six minutes before the countdown and we'd just sat there watching the ship proceed oh, for six minutes
0: <laughs> with the alien shaking its fist at her out of one of the windows I'll get you there <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <laughs> uh, she okay. I've never seen anything like it. What's going on here? We've got this now. It must go on. We have to go on.
1: Wait a minute. This movement seems to
6: have life.
0: So then on the actual Narcissus shuttle
6: scene
0: you get the sudden oh my god the alien was still with her Now, I don't know if people watching in 79 were, were, were thinking right that's over I may as well get up and go to the car park at this point that film is totally over because it doesn't feel over as, as a movie at that point because you know, if you didn't see the alien die it's not fucking dead I mean that that must have been around for donkey's years in horror movies and, and B movies and all kinds of movies so, yeah, we're waiting for the logical conclusion to actually occur. But when it does, it's almost entirely wordless, and it's almost entirely done with visual storytelling and uh, acting on Weaver's part, which is extremely good, and she sort of captivates you again. Anyone on this particular scene?
3: The first time I saw it, I was... I just, obviously, I didn't know what was going to happen, and when the fact that it was hiding there in the... Um, with all the other pipes and control panels, and it looked part of the scenery. So I was just yeah. like, oh, she's just you know, programmed to go there. Maybe there's, like, it's going to be a cliffhanger or something, and then his hand just goes bang, and I was like, Jesus!
0: Oh, my God, it's crazy. So even you, who have watched so many horror movies, weren't anticipating this bit? Uh, n- no. Well, I thought something was going to happen, but
3: genuinely, when I do watch horror films that uh, do have jumpy moments, I know something's going to happen, but it still makes me jump, and that's just, uh just adds to the um, to the enjoyment factor for me I, I i want to actually physically jump out of my skin um,
2: <laughs> i think i think for me uh, when i first saw it i got the sense that something was going to happen because there's that long build up of her like getting changed to get ready into uh, well not taking, taking herself um <laughs> uh, like i i because the way horror movies usually work I'm expecting the alien to come out from behind her. What instead happens is you're actually staring at the alien the entire time and you're not noticing it's there and then mm. suddenly it moves. You're like, oh my God, that's not a pipe. Technically, she surprises it. True. Mm. Um,
4: one thing that I find absolutely brilliant about this scene and it's really quite fascinating when you watch it, as Ripley backs away from the alien... As it's, it's coming out um, from between the pipes, she sidles back into um, the cupboard, and you can almost see they're, this, they're mirroring each other. Mm. And then, obviously, she's completely vulnerable at that point because she's stripped down to her underwear, which is one of my. Why don't they make
0: pants. pants like that anymore? Yeah.
4: We discussed this. <laughs> they do, but nobody looks good in them unless you are as thin as Sigourney Weaver was in 1979. Okay. She's right yeah um then as she she starts to put the um the suit on she 's armoring up she is making herself like the xenomorph at that point, and she, she you know you've got the um she, uh, the helmet has this curved shiny carapace to it, like the alien's head um, and she gets the little harpoon gun, which is like its mouth thing that what do they call it? Does it have a name, the tongue with the teeth on the end of it?
0: It's Second More.
4: Second More. Well, she has the harpoon gun. That's her equivalent to that. So she is basically uh, becoming its equal in order to take it on. Um, And that, I think, folds in with what we were talking before about the whole empowerment thing. And it's a... It's great to watch. I love it. And the fact that she's she gets to the point where she's tying herself into the chair and she's humming the uh, lucky, lucky star to keep herself focused. Um,
0: it's almost like she's singing it to sleep to try and keep it lulled into her Like it's a child at that point waking up and she's trying to so, so, you know going gosh, little baby, don't say a word. Yeah.
4: yeah, I never thought of that. But, yeah, that's a good point. I'm Although that's, it's her own... View it's her own fear she's singing swallow this
0: and the sound for that whole scenario because like you say there's almost no music at all it just drains out everything all you can hear is her breathing and the clicking and clunking as she gets into all of her her gear
2: Um, does anyone else feel because the alien isn't actively hostile in that scene it just seems Mm. to be content to sit where it is
0: it's almost like it's going phew we got out of that one right where next (laughs)
2: Yeah, cause I, I kind of got the sense that the alien almost knew that it needed to have one person survive so it would arrive anywhere. Mm. Like, it knew that the ship was its only chance of survival, and if it killed uh, Ripley, then that's it, it's dead.
0: Mm. Again, that's inferred. It shouldn't know that. It's just a drone, but there's no reason why it shouldn't.
2: Well, I, I think Although they're very primal, animalistic creatures, I think it's been demonstrated um, later on in the series that these creatures are very quick learners. They, they can... have a
0: very highly developed sense of survival. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, parallels with Aliens and Alien 3 in the way she dispatches this creature. And it's, you know, in The Queen, she flushes it out of the airlock. In Alien 3, she drowns it in hot lead and then lets loose the water on it. And it's just the, those three form... A trilogy that is really whole and actually when we talk about Alien 3 it's sort of that rounds off the whole thing that is Ripley's story coming to an end Alien Resurrection that is not Ripley that is not her character that is not her soul she has not gone through all this that is a body made of bits of Ripley which for some reason appears to have retained some of her memory but it's not Ripley ergo 1 2 and 3 are the Alien Trilogy Everything after that was the fucking Hollywood cash-ins.
4: At best, you could argue it's her daughter. Mm. Because that is effectively what a clone is. It's, a, it's offspring. It's the child of whatever the original cell came from.
0: But it's no more Ripley than, Kill me! Ripley number six, or whatever that one that she torches is. So yeah, one, two, and three. That is the story of Ellen Ripley. And there it should end. The character of Ripley dies at the end of Alien 3. They brought her back to no real effect in any resurrection. I, and I don't believe anyone else, has any interest in seeing that particular side of the story explored and her further adventures with with shoplifting Winona Ryder and 65-year-old Ron Perlman. This first film stands as an absolutely super inspirational piece of filmmaking and uh, a piece of cinema I don't know if they've already put it in that place where they preserve films for their importance to the, the you know, contributions to the cinema they only just put Back to the Future in there a few years ago so I mean if it's not in there already it should be no it is as simple as that okay good where can we get a list of that
1: let me google that for you
0: thank you <laughs> Okay. So, um, rather than going on and on and on about it, let's just finish now, and we'll come back for Aliens next week. Okay? Cool. We will leave Ripley there for 57 years, and be back soon. On Gonzo Planet this week, and this is a new thing, because I never, I don't pimp enough what happens on Gonzo Planet, and I'm going to start doing that now. So, in the past couple of days, Neil Taylor has taken a look at the knotty issue of trying to combat piracy, in a audio and text article, and you also get a brand new instalment of the internet news. This one is on schools. Before we go, gentlemen and ladies, pimp whatever you need. Start with Josh. Uh,
2: you can find me at uh where there is a podcast where we take one game or a couple and we dissect them, deconstruct them, and talk about them in detail. Um, On the website, you can also find reviews and interesting articles. And I promise, very soon, I will have a new project uh, for Digital Gonzo uh, on the site. Very, very soon. I promise. Still looking forward to it. (laughs) Leah Haydu.
1: Uh, you can find me at gamerdork.net, uh, where I am one of the regular hosts on the new show, Gamerdork 4.0, which, uh, we've only put one episode out so far, uh, normally that's going to be a bi-weekly, or uh, every other week
0: is that biweekly or is biweekly twice? It changes. Weeks?
1: Yeah, see, I'm not sure, but fortnightly. Et- yeah, there you go. See, uh, we'll we'll stick with that fortnightly um, uh, podcast. This week is um, actually uh, Dorca Patuza unless I am mistaken, which I um, that's correct. yes, so I see that's, there right now. Yeah, so that's uh, that's kind of uh, preempting th- this week's show, but uh, we should be back soon-ish. So um, and in theory, I also write things there and edit so you know check it
0: out it's cool good stuff James Perkins
3: okay uh, you can find me on Gonzo Planet gonzoplanet.com forward slash geek I do a movie show uh, similar to Digital Gonzo uh, mainly focusing on horror because that is my favourite genre Uh, you can also find me at gameburst.co.uk I'm part of the amazing crew over at Gameburst and uh, yeah please check us out thank you
5: Matt uh, I am uh, co-host of the Dork Tunes podcast. You can find us over at uh, gamerdork dot uh, net. Uh, we do uh, probably once a month thereabouts, um, all about video game music. And Sharon, uh,
4: you can find me here, where my bed and TV is. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I've gone to planet primarily. Um, the occasional podcast and the occasional article. Um, you're
0: working on one right now. Working aren't you? on
4: one right now. That's what they
1: all say. <laughs> I think you guys should know that I just ordered, now, uh, the Alien Anthology on Blu-ray, because I'm nice. tired of screwing with my mother's DVDs.
3: Yeah, you get all four films, then the making of, then the archives, which I'm guessing looks
0: like really Let cute. me tell you, folks, the Alien Anthology, the six-disc one that me and Midge have, really is the way to do Blu-ray. Yeah. Every- single version of each film is on there you've got two cuts of Alien two cuts of Aliens the first time ever that Aliens has been released theatrically on any disc apart from LaserDisc it's only ever been the director's cut before that it's not better but at least we've got it Uh, Alien 3 basically what you're getting there while it may be extremely expensive is fucking fantastic it is how Every box set should be. It is what Lucasfilm should take a look at and consider for the inevitable next time they do a Star Wars Blu-ray set. It's also really, really well presented. There's, there's um, multiple commentaries on each one. There's isolated scores, different versions of isolated scores. You can hear the original score that Jerry Goldsmith did burst up for Alien before they changed things around you know swapped out his stuff with um, pieces of music from other films which Alien ended up with this sort of weird hodgepodge of other things in there it's just phenomenal there are are a few other sets I've got uh, which are as good as this I think ultimately um the, the Lord of the Rings extended editions are pretty s- superb but the, the way they handled that on Blu-ray was ridiculous they gave you the three films on Blu-ray and then all of the discs you already own on DVD in exactly the same format again just filling up your Blu-ray shelf with discs you already own it's ridiculous so that's all from us this week I would like to thank my guests Leah Heydu, Sharon Shaw, Joshua Garrity Matt Ramsey, James Perkins You've been listening to Digital Gonzo, I've been Alex Shaw, and next time, it's war.
2: So the the xenomorphs are kind of like the nuclear bomb. Then they're like okay. Say
0: that again, but say the word
2: nuclear. Okay. Um, So the so the xenomorphs are like a nuclear bomb. Then
0: you say it again. Unbelievable. (laughs) It's fine, but the the word is nuclear.
2: Nuclear. 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 (laughs) (sighs) Nuclear. Guess what's going at the end of this show. It's good enough for George W.
5: Bush. It's good enough for Josh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what was it we were watching the other day where they said nuclear? Oh, it was Jeremy Renner said nuclear in uh, uh, Mission Impossible Four: Ghost Protocol. If it's good enough for Hawkeye, it's good enough for Josh. Okay, just say it one more time. But say the word
2: nuclear. So the xenomorph is kind of like their nuclear bomb.
6: Yep.
2: Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say that one more time so I don't sound like I'm a weirdo? Wait a minute. Um. No possibility of that happening.
0: (laughs) There was a spat of uh, terrible TV cuts of movies that really shouldn't have been on TV without... You know, were filled with foul language and they attempted to make more sort of family-friendly even though the subject matter really fucking wasn't by um, adding almost comically bad uh, dubbed dialogue over them.
1: Totally, totally off topic, but have you ever seen the TV, or any TV dubs, because they're almost all hilarious, of the Big Lebowski?
0: I have not.
1: This is why you never have fun with a stranger in the Alps. (laughs) I mean, or this, sorry, this is what happens when you have fun with a stranger in the Alps. Um, This is what happens when you feed a stranger scrambled eggs. That's a pretty good one. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's probably the best example of TV dubbing I can think of.
0: I believe in the TV the airline version of Out of Sight, uh, Don Cheadle calls someone else Monkey Feather.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when you see a close-up of its mouth, its teeth actually appear to be metallic, Metal, yeah. 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 yeah, which you'd think is completely absurd, but actually uh, there are examples of insects in nature that form their cocoons out of iron. And stuff like that, which oh, is, sharks yeah, have an iron skeleton. I actually did know that. Sorry, what? Sharks have an iron skeleton. No, they have a. Uh, they don't have an iron skeleton. They have a.
1: <laughs> you're, you're thinking of Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, hold on, iron. Let me see that. No, sharks in... have um. What's the Cartilage skeleton. Mm-hmm. Skeleton.
5: I, to, I, I would go with Josh on that one. I don't know if that's actually true, but I'd be more inclined to believe Josh than and the
2: fact that sharks have got They have a cartilage skeleton because they live in water so they don't need the uh, support of the uh, calcium bones.
0: Uh, yeah, hang on, they're very, very different from those of bony fish and terrestrial vertebrates. Sharks are cartilaginous fish... Skates and rays have skeletons made of cartilage and connective tissue. Cartilage is flexible and durable, yet it's about half the normal density
5: of both.
4: Where did you get iron from? It's a mutant shark, right? And its iron, skeleton st- is iron, so it can't actually swim. It just sits on the bottom of the ocean going, damn this iron skeleton. You
0: know what? I think I was thinking of Stitch. Okay, right. So, just say that again with the insects with the metal teeth, because I actually interrupt you to say something that's totally wrong. <laughs>
2: no, um...
0: Schiller sharks have iron skeleton (laughs) Okay And actually before we go I didn't mention it during the Episode because I knew it would break Everything up and get rid of our Completely serious head But there is a scene in this That has been parodied in another movie And because of that parody Even though the scene is so intense And terrifying and really effective I can't really scrub the parody Out of my head Can anyone tell me what it is? Spaceballs
5: fucking space ball <laughs> 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 it, when I watched this uh, the other day where the alien um, runs off the table it just looked exactly the same and I was expecting it to start bursting into song I just can't yeah, get out of my too. head <laughs> see
4: this is the thing we, we, we were talking about that and it was like this this horrible intense incredibly horrific scene and all I can think is damn you Mel Brooks
0: <laughs> with its straw boater and its little cane I'll play you the bit now
4: he said
6: from the bark you dummies <laughs> from the bark <laughs> He alright? Like, yeah. Yeah, the god me. Hey, what's wrong with this guy? I don't know. Uh, 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 bring him some water. Water in my ass. Bring this guy some Pepto Bismol. Waitress, waitress. What did he order? Oh, he had a special. That's what I ordered. Change my order to the soup. Good move. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, no. Not again. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my on gal. Send me a kiss by water. Baby, my heart's on fire. If you refuse me, honey, you lose me Then you'll be left alone Oh, baby, telephone And tell me I'm your own
0: Check, please. You've been listening to Digital Gonzo. I've been Alex Shaw. And how am I going to sign off for each of these? Um, I
2: can give you a no shotgun penis guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> Love that
1: being the sign-off for this. That should be the sign-off. That should just be your your website motto from now on. <laughs> Digital Gonzo, no
4: shotgun, No shotgun pain guarantee. guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I, I got it. Yeah, I got his it. daughter's going to listen to these at some point.
1: <laughs> God, I sincerely hope not. <laughs>